are back, the Durin Show, episode number eleven. Joined by Mitchell, Matt. How's it going, guys? Happy going? weekend. Happy weekend. This is gonna be fun. Like we uh, we've been talking a lot in our uh, like chats or uh, texts, whatever, about list ideas, theory crafting, rules, questions, different ideas. Um, I feel like there's been a uptick in in creativity, uptick in resurgence of energy back in maybe because we're playing some games it's starting to fuel the fire a little bit what do you guys think you guys feeling the same thing yeah you can only talk about a game so long when you can't actually play it yeah can't even watch other people play it on youtube because so i i think just seeing some life back into the hobby is good for the soul of creativity yeah I think so. And just when you're actually able to, like Matt said, play games, it's just so refreshing. Yeah, because I, I swear, like, the as soon as I play a game, that turns into a bat rep for me. That turns into thinking about, like, four different ways I could have built the list. And I could come up with, like, 17 different new ideas for, like, what I could have done. So it it takes me at least a week to just digest a single game. It's great. I love it. Um, but... With that being said, we had to, uh, what tonight we're going to be talking about some rules questions that have come up recently slash that people have sent in, which has been super fun. Um, so we're gonna we're gonna talk about it, do our take, try to um, answer them as accurately as we can. Our take on them, they're obviously gray area. They haven't been FAQ'd to my knowledge, so um, we might not be 100% right, but it'll be our take. And then. Uh, the second part, we saw like this really fascinating um, discussion about how to use might, and we had a couple thoughts on why we either agreed with this with this specific blog or why we disagreed. So we'll talk about that. Different play styles, I think, is going to come into this a lot. Um, and then last, just a, uh, a a list idea that I've been trying to work on a lot, and you guys have been hammering it really, really hard, which is good, but. Um, wanted to kind of bring that discussion into the into the podcast and maybe by the end of you know the year we'll have a really sweet ironed out idea or i'll burn all the models and start something new so not sure which (laughs) but but yeah without uh without any further ado let's get into the the first part so rules questions and i'm not i don't have these in any specific order uh couple of them were ones that we've been talking about and a couple again a couple were ones that were sent in so um in no particular order let's just go through these one at a time give our takes what we think and then if we have references let's call them out but the first one is this models that have so the question is models that have the ability to deal strikes when they lose a fight are they able to benefit from a heroic combat if they called one and killed their enemy with their special rule i.e. Sharku, Sharky. And I had to go back and refresh my memory, but like the Sharku rule was if he loses the fight, I think he gets one strength four hit. Um, and he can and deal a blow back at the model that's hitting him. So I think the question is, if Sharku were to lose the fight, back away, but with that, uh, with that special strike, in fact, kill the person that he was trying to kill would his heroic combat go off as if he had won the fight and killed the model normally 
So let me pause there. I don't want to be the first one to answer here. Well, I know Mitchell's looking it up, but I'm going to take the safe answer and then I'll let him correct me if he reads it uh, and find something different. But I think the key here is that heroic combats go off and I believe what Mitchell will find is you have to win the fight and deal your strikes by losing the fight and the opponent having a chance to wound you and then having those strikes go off, you lose that. So I'm going to say no, because it specifically says you have to win the fight. I don't think it does. So I'm reading right off the hero combat. It says when a hero model declares a hero combat, that uh, the fight that they are involved in is resolved first. In addition, if all enemy models in the fight are slain, the hero and any model from the force engaged in the same fight, not those joining in with spear or pike, see pages 84, 85, may move again before proceeding with the fight phase. So it doesn't say that they have to win the fight in order to do it. And I'm looking at the order of operations in the combat phase. This is, I didn't realize we were talking about this, so I'm doing last minute um, lookups. But, yeah, and uh, the, the FAQ here will be key because they talked about the order of operations and the FAQ of if you lose. So if someone would mind looking up the FAQ while I'm I'll, I'll, I'll pull those up. Sweet, thank you. Because uh, resolving the fight in the fight phase, it's the dual roll. Players uh, roll a number of dice equal to the number of their attacks to see who wins. Number two is loser back away. Uh, must back away one inch winner makes strikes and then remove casualties so i need to pull up uh Charcou's now special rule so this I, is an interesting I've, question. I've got the rule pulled up and this is first off this is such a niche case i if you ever actually run into this in real life i will be amazed so i'm yeah. not sure how realistic or or efficient this is talking about it but it's a super fascinating idea um, but the, so this is Sharku's, I don't have Sharky pulled up, but this is Sharku's, Sharku's rule. It's called riding dagger. It says, this is a dagger. Additionally, whenever an enemy hero model in base contact resolves a strike against Sharku and fails to wound, immediately resolve one strength four hit against that model. So basically every time a hero strikes at Sharku and fails to wound, Sharku uh, strikes back. So in my mind, this is the scenario. Sharku and a friendly warg rider charge a captain on foot and they lose the fight and then back away and the captain then does two attacks back at Sharku, fails both of them Sharku takes those two attacks convert those back into strength four hits against the captain and kills the captain so the question is does the Sharku and warg rider get to benefit from the heroic combat because Sharku killed the model um, with his special rule after backing away. And here's the FAQ, because this is what I was thinking about in my mind. So it doesn't exactly relate, but I think it applies. So the question is, if two opposing hero models in the same fight both declare a heroic combat, and the hero that wins the roll-off dies during the fight, does the other hero still get to move on for their heroic combat? Now, it's a different scenario, but the answer is why I'm applying this. The answer is no. The hero can only move on if their heroic combat is successful. As the other hero won the roll-off, their heroic combat is the one that happens first, which was unsuccessful. This will essentially cancel the heroic model's heroic combat. So the reason I'm applying that, even though it's a completely different scenario, is it's saying the other guy won the roll-off and went first. So I guess, really, it doesn't apply because we're talking about it going and we're losing the fight and the special rules. So I'm going to withdraw my opinion 
that was what was jarring my brain. And just after reading that, that, that doesn't apply here. So I think it's, I think it could still work. I think that's a great call out, Matt, because, uh, yeah, it, it was jarring my memory a little bit too, but I think you're spot on in that it's a different situation because that's which hero combat is resolved first. Um, and they're saying in that FAQ that if, if hero one, uh, wins the it goes first wins the roll off and does his heroic first loses and then dies subsequently hero two who also called it hero combat um, is not successful with his hero combat because his was essentially canceled because the fight has already been resolved before he could start his hero combat yeah In, for some reason I thought it had said if you lose the fight but it doesn't it's just the order of which fight goes first so this doesn't apply to this question so but I think I think that's a great philosophy because what it's essentially doing is when is the combat completely resolved so if we're going back to the hero combat in the rules where it says when a hero declares a hero combat in the fight phase all uh, involved in the fight is resolved first in addition if all enemies in the fight are slain the hero and any models in that engaged in the same fight can move on again essentially right i'm paraphrasing a little bit so to me in my mind until models are removed from play the the fight is still in 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 process right that's the order of operations in the combat you roll to see who wins you deal your strikes and you remove models from play so to me i think technically sharku would have a successful hero combat if that played out that's a weird scenario but to me the way i'm reading it that would be correct yes i agree with you well i agree with you 100 percent yep uh, lots of lots of things to digest there. Lots of weird stars would have to align for this to actually happen. But yes, I, I think, yeah, I, I, th- I agree with you guys 100%. Very, very weird scenario, but very cool to talk about. I love these kind of questions. <laughs> this is what I live for when people think, what do you like to do? Well, I love uh, looking up rules. When I get challenged, I'm like, oh, that's kind of a weird scenario. Let's Let's play that out. Let's see what it says. If yeah. the moon is in Virgo, though. Yeah. <laughs> Now, we didn't talk about whether or not this happens on a Thursday or a Sunday, so uh, not joking. No, that's good. That's good. Um, okay, so next one. I guess we didn't talk talk, talk about Sharky specifically, but I'm, I'm just going to apply our logic to Sharku across the board, unless you guys think differently. Yes. Oop, I'm good with that. Okay. Uh, okay, so number two. This is one. I'm not biased at all, but this is my question. So uh, we, we got to make sure we hammer this one pretty good. But... This is this is the high level question. At what point do you have to spend might when you are dealing strikes in a multi combat situation? So let me paint the scenario, then get you guys' input. So let's think we have Aragorn and uh, two Ministerial warriors, and we're going against a, a Mordor cave troll. We Aragorn and the two Ministerial warriors win the combat. Hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Hold on. What is a Mordor cave troll? <laughs> Sorry, go ahead. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That does make sense. Uh, Mortar Troll. I'm okay. looking at a cave troll right here. I know. I'm, like, I'm distracted. I'm just, no, that's, I'm just that's being a, a jerk. <laughs> that's a good call. A Mortar Troll. Uh, so let's say Aragorn and the two Minister Tirith Warriors win the fight. And now I, as the Gondor player, am making strikes. And I'm going to strike with Aragorn first. And I roll uh, all three dice. Aragorn's on foot. He's got three dice, and I roll them. And I roll a four, four, and a three. And I'm I'm sorry, this is like a stupid example because the model needs fate. So let's make this a mortar troll chieftain. So he's got three wounds and one fate. 
I'm making this way way harder than it needs to be. Um, nope, we are now changing the Mordor Church Chieftain to a Orc Captain. So Aragorn rolls a 4-4-3. Four, four, so Aragorn gets two wounds with the fours, and then he has one die, the three, which is uh, he could might uh, to make it a wound as well. But I want to wait to see if the captain passes his fate roll because I don't want to spend a point of might to, to make three wounds if Aragorn would have killed him with only two. So I know I butchered that. That was very convoluted, but I hope you guys get what I'm trying to say. I am not striking with the, I'm not trying to say Aragorn is going to make his strikes and then go strike with the Gondor warriors to see if I get any wounds and then come back to Aragorn to spend might. I'm only using Aragorn. I'm only activating Aragorn. I'm only rolling with Aragorn. And I'm trying to see, do I need to, uh, can I wait to see if the orc passes his fate roll before choosing to spend that point of might to, to make that 3A4 and then cause three wounds so let me pause there in my mind my gut reaction right off the bat well if if you have zero wounds rema remaining uh you have zero wounds remaining but you don't remove models from play until uh, after all strikes are resolved so that is interesting so and uh, this is and i know we talked about this a little bit or we might talk about it a little bit with more chariot discussion coming up yeah but on the multi-combat rule, so if you go to the fight phase in the rule in the main rule book, and in the fight phase, there's the order of operations at the very beginning, which step number four is remove casualties. But skip that for a second because we need context. Go to uh, page number what 60? No, what is this? 46, and it's uh, talking about multi-combats with multiple attacks. Mm -hmm. And it's and the last part is remove casualties. It says any model that is reduced to zero wounds is immediately removed from play as a casualty. And it even says if you have multiple attacks, you can distribute your attacks at different models. And in common play, I think we've all experienced the fact where if I am a big hero and I have lots of warriors around me, I'll just throw all my dice to speed things up. I'll throw all my dice and say, hey, I want to kill. I want to uh, I want to okay. allocate my wounds to the warriors in this order, but I'm yeah. just going to throw four dice right now. I'm not going to roll one at a time. Um, so using that I, mentality, using that thought process, applying it to, okay, I'm, I'm striking only a single model and I want to see if I want to spend might. And we could even complicate this further. Let's say Aragorn is charging on horse and he's got an additional attack. And I want to see, do I have to keep putting attacks at this orc captain or can I start trying to kill other fodder as well? Yeah. So let me pause there. I think you are spot on. This this rule that Marcus just pointed out for those who want to look is page 47. And it says it's its own little one sentence bold character. It says removing casualties or remove casualties. Sorry. Any model that is re reduced to zero wounds is immediately removed from play as a casualty. So this is different. I want to point out because it says model. So that's yes. for cavalry. That is completely different. But yes, this is I agree. model. When the model is reduced to zero wounds, it is removed from play immediately. So that to me answers your question right there on he has to burn the fate. Right to, there. Right then, right there to make sure that otherwise he has to remove his model from play. And then you can distribute your strikes elsewhere. If he does not, it, I mean, he just has to remove it. So Essentially, yes, he has to burn his fate right then, right there, and you get to see what that result is to see if he stays alive and then distribute your attacks accordingly. I love when people agree with me. No, I'm joking. <laughs> Matt, what do you think? I think you guys are right, but honestly, I think this is uh, like the old 
argument about one inch versus the size of the base. It's technically correct as written, but it's breaking the game for the sake of trying to go to the letter of the law. I mean, it's correct that it applies to the person on the ground. The fact that we're not applying it to Mitchell's chariots is silly. Yes. It's 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 breaking the game. So this will this will be FAQ'd. It's no different than is a base one inch or is it X millimeters? So you can't enter the control zone. I, I think it's silliness. But you guys are technically correct. Yeah, and yeah, and I will. We're definitely going to talk about the the Condish Chariot mm-hmm. part later because I think that's what question number five. Because yeah, this is going this literal this literal sentence is going to come back because we're going to ignore it. Or our personal take is we're going to ignore we, it in just a couple minutes. Yeah, we did talk about it a little bit in the last episode, but yeah, it's it's yeah. it's it is broken. I'm I don't like breaking rules. So now that everybody's <laughs> saying I'm a rule breaker, now I'm getting bitter about. No, it. no, no. I don't <laughs> think you're a rule breaker. I think you're following it. But I mean, so taking were the, advantage of a hole. So were the people. They who need were, some help. Okay. And saying you can <laughs> charge the guy in front of them. So. Because what I'm referencing, in case people don't know, yeah. is and there was a lot of different applications. But if you had Tom Bombadil and you placed a model in front of him. Nobody could ever technically charge the model because one inch was just in front of his base. And then Tom Bombadil, no one yeah. can enter a one inch control zone. So yes. that's what I'm referencing. And that I think that all got taken away by most of the TOs. Yeah. yeah. It's kind of yeah. yeah, the spirit of the game, if you will. How, but House rules stepped in to override letter of the law. Yeah. And so, Mitchell, I'm not saying you're breaking the rules. I think you're following the rules perfectly as written. I just don't think it's in the spirit of... That was probably. I will just defend myself one last time. Is I sent these questions into the FAQ. No, no, no. I tried to get it answered. Save this rebuttal for when we get to the Condish Chariot questions. We're getting there. But we talked about Condish Chariot last episode. Yeah, we did talk about it last episode. We we spent like 15 minutes talking about that. Yeah, we did. People are sick of hearing us complain about Condish Chariot. I I wonder why they're sick of it. It's almost like it was loaded up with like 20 Corsairs with plus one to wound. (laughs) (laughs) And they still couldn't kill a freaking model. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Uh, Yeah. All right, so it sounds like it sounds like we're aligned. So in this use case, uh, Aragorn would be able to not would be able to delay spending any resources to see the result of the fate roll, and then uh, act accordingly. So sweet. Now, interesting. Interestingly, Let's though, there is something, uh, and this came up at Nova last year, but if you're rolling your dice separately, mm-hmm. you have to, so. Trying to remember. So this was this was a little bit different application, but it was a guy who was rolling his. Let's just say he had Aragorn, and then he had uh, three Citadel guards in a combat against somebody. Aragorn rolled his attacks and chose not. He was going to wait to spend might till he saw how his Citadel guard rolled. And so they said, okay, if you wait for your Citadel Guard to roll, you can no longer modify Aragorn's because you've done it separately. Correct. So I'm curious how that dynamic would interact with this. Because if you wait, then you might be foregoing your opportunity to might up your fate rolls. Yeah, my my take on that is the idea of activating models at a time. So if if I do have those three Citadel Guards, I... Can, when I'm making strikes, and I know you you usually roll things together, so sometimes this gets muddled, but if I'm being perfectly technical in my mind, I would roll each model or group of models individually or warriors and heroes separately. So if I roll Aragorn separately and I roll his three attacks and I roll that 4-4-3 four, four, 
and then I go to roll the Citadel Guards. I've activated Aragorn, I've struck with Aragorn, and I've moved on. So I can't roll the Citadel Guard and then come back to them yep. spend might from Aragorn because I saw the result of the Citadel Guards. They couldn't do anything. Shocker. And then I come back to Aragorn and he has to clean up the mess. Yeah. I can't do that. I would have to activate one at a time. And this is a paragraph for people who want to follow. It's on page 66 on Might. It's the last paragraph of the line. It says, A hero model can use Might points to alter their own dice rolls, not those of the friendly or enemy models. This means that in some situations, such as multiple combats, it's important to roll dice separately for a specific hero model uh, ordinarily... uh, Sorry. For a specific hero models and ordinary warrior models, a good system is to just use the instance to have a different colored dice. Oh, this is talking about the colored dice. I thought I found it. Sorry. If you don't have enough color, oh, this is talking. Never mind. Forget what I just said. I thought this. <laughs> well, found I, it. I thought I found well, what, it specifically. What you're saying though, it's important to segregate. Yes. Segregate your your dice from either heroes or warriors or people who have might or people who don't have might. But um. Yeah, especially when you have a multiple combat and you're trying to kill things in a specific order, it's better to just. Don't roll, roll them together. everything together. So get different colors for your hero. Get different mm-hmm. colors for your warriors. Roll them all together so you can see the total result before you decide if you want to spend might. And I, the only reason I brought that into the conversation is I thought it might apply if you're waiting to spend will or fate, excuse me. If you roll one and then choose to go roll a second one, you lose the ability to might the first one. Yep. Yep. Yeah, I totally agree with you. So... All right, so the next... I'm trying to find it, but I agree with all of you. The This next one's going to be interesting, because I, I I looked at this one, and I don't have... And I know there's an FAQ part, which we can definitely talk about, but I don't play with Siege Engines a lot, so I'm definitely going to rely on Mitchell, and I don't... Matt, Matt, if you play with Siege Engines at all. But um, this is the question. Where do you measure line of sight for a Siege weapon that doesn't have volley fire? Do you use the tip of the engine anywhere on the engine or do you use the crew? Now this is, this is um, specifically a uh, line of sight that don't have a ballista a line, of, line of sight comes from whatever member of the crew you want in the ways come from where the missile comes out. Exactly what Matt just said. I think this was FAQ'd, correct Matt? I think, I think it was, but yeah. I played with a guy here in Fort Worth who was all over that even before the FAQ. Yeah, no, I think you're spot on, Matt. I think that was FAQ'd. Yeah, there was, I think there was an order of operations that they walked through for an actual ballista example. Um, exactly. And maybe it might not have called out that specific conclusion, but yeah, I, I 100% agree with you, Matt. Yeah, line of sights for people who are firing it in the ways come from where the missile is projected from, yeah. Sweet. Well, that Which one brings, easy. I mean, if we're going to say that, then my next question was, that's easy for like an Iron Hills Ballista or an Urukai, but what about the, the trebuchet? So should we not glue our models so you can make the little rock go up really high to get rid of in the ways? <laughs> well, the trebuchet doesn't have in the ways. It's unless got it's volley fire. Oh, it's got volley fire. That's yeah, right. Yeah. That's right. It's got volley fire. So does uh, the Iron Hills. Yep. Yeah. Which. That's, that's what breaks the Iron Hills one too. It's like I, a Ballista, but it has volley fire. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, don't get me started. Like, there's no. I but love now this it's game. More expensive, so it's not broken. <laughs> yes, that's true. But this game, like, <laughs> okay, we're not. I swear, I'm not gonna complain about this for more than ten seconds. But I had, like, I was playing up against one of those Iron Hills ballistas, and I put two warriors up against a castle wall. Now they are they are right up against a castle wall, forty inches or whatever it was away from the Iron Hills ballista, and volley fire. 
means that they got hit. They're not protect. They have a giant wall covering them, like yeah, 10 where times. the where it would come down, unless it comes. There's no geometry. Dry, yeah, down. I was like, yeah. okay, what did you do? Shoot this like three miles into the sky and judge wind perfectly? Like, how'd you do that? Now okay. on that example, I'm not <laughs> sure which which time you're talking it, about, but they still have to have line of sight. Someone in the yeah. army. So yeah. there was a guy way off in on the, the army. Side. Still be okay. He could now, still see. He was he was Mark, like three clicks out. Calling yeah. in. He's got like a laser sight. Like, yeah. <laughs> they're right behind the wall, Sarge. Yeah. Fire. It's the hammer gone. <laughs> yeah. uh, Marcus, I will say in the Siege Engine rules, I don't know if this applies, but and I, I haven't looked it up or read it in a while. It does say if it doesn't make sense for them to be hit based on the projectile, then they shouldn't be hit. Because, it's, like, for instance, roofs or if they're in a building or something like that. But so I think this, it's an exception there. This got hit by Nova. There is an exception, and this actually happened to me at Nova. Um, the rules as written slash how they were interpreted at Nova were it has to be a building or ceiling on top of you. Okay. So Something nothing directly physically, covering you. Yeah, you have to be completely covered by a roof of some sort. That is, so the, this was in our doubles doubles game. That's where he was laughing. <laughs> Technically, if you were under that tree with the flimsy branch, you would be okay. But since you're behind this 40 foot wall and yes. there's no roof, you are not. Uh, <laughs> I remember that. <laughs> I was just like, this makes no sense. But that, yeah, that is hilarious. Whatever. But yeah, see, I'm not the only one breaking things. <laughs> uh, Okay, this this is an interesting one, and I, I couldn't find any actual rules, and I was looking through the new uh, match play supplement to see. I think this might fall into something called house rules or tournament rules. I'll see what you guys think. But the question is, how do war beasts interact with terrain? I.e., can war beasts destroy terrain? Um, and I broke this into a couple categories. Like, could they destroy trees? Could they run over trees? If if a Mumak is trying to walk through a uh, path and there is a shrub that is less than half height, but let's say maybe three or four inches tall, would that tree restrict the movement of the Mumak? Or can you the Mumak hurdle something that is less than half its height? So that's question number one. And then question number two is if we're saying yes or no, is there an ability for a Mumak to either disregard or to, to destroy like that type of terrain? Like I'm not asking to walk through a house right now, but more so like the idea of just a small clump of forest. Uh, so I think it depends on if you've classified it as terrain or a siege target. If it's a siege target, it can be destroyed. If it's terrain, it cannot. And then can a Mumak go over it depends on how high is the terrain and how does the base sit as they attempt to go if they want to end their move on it. So I think we ran into this, Mitchell, when you and I played with your chariots. We had barrels. We decided you could not yeah. destroy the barrels by going over them. Um, and the chariot had to go around since a chariot can't go over terrain. But if it had been a horse, they could have just jumped it. I would say a Mumak could have easily done the same thing. Uh, but that's my answer, and then you guys can correct me. I like yeah. shooting from the hip and then seeing if I'm right. <laughs> <laughs> Shoot first, ask questions later. Yeah. That's that's usually my strategy. Uh, I'm trying to quickly read through it. Um, I would, I, I don't run War Beasts. I don't think I've run War Beasts in a long time or played against them in a long time. But uh, I think what Matt said is spot on. Is I know there's something that says something about terrain or interacting with terrain. But uh, I think what Matt says is correct. So like if the TO declares that this is a um, siege target or a battlefield target or you know something of that 
sense where it can be destroyed and he's given it a defense and wound value, um, then yes, it can interact with that. But other than that, I think it's, I'm trying to skim through it really quickly, but I don't think it can. Well, let me give us an out too, because I, I was, I thought I had bookmarked the ward B section and I don't. So maybe what we'll do is we can come back and give a a rules reference at some other time. But I, I like what you said, Matt. Um, I think what maybe the the situation is, is if you're in a, a game and nobody thought about giving wound values to a tree that is three inches tall and then a tree that is six inches tall, like how do you come up with that? But maybe that's more of a question for TOs, like how do you build your boards and manage your boards, especially when people are bringing Mumax because it, yeah. it's going to make, it could make the game kind of stupid. And I've seen some people just like take the tree out. It's like if there's a tree that's really hindering or is creating like, move channels that would obviously prohibit a Moomac from going through. I've seen some TOs just modify the board to make it work, but yeah. this was, I guess, a little more technical. There, um, there is and, one. And I'll back this, my, my opinion up by saying page 26 of the rules gives terrain and it gives open ground, difficult terrain, obstacles, and it talks about barricades, broken walls, all the different things that count as an obstacle. And it talks about how to interact it never talks about destroying them mm. or moving them. It tells there you go. how to defend with them. So I think the fact that it goes to all that detail and never talks about removing them, and then there's no special rules in a model that gives it the ability to destroy terrain. The only reference to being able to destroy terrain is when it's classified as a siege target uh, mm. would be my reason for backing that up now that I've looked at the rules. I would agree with you 100% there. I think that is the logical way of doing it too. Also, um, the first paragraph of War Beasts and Movement says that they cannot cross objects taller than two inches, and they cannot make any jump, climb, or leap tests or swim tests. They automatically uh, move unimpeded through all kinds of water features, but they may enter difficult terrain so long as it will fit. So they're very clear about what they do with terrain. It says they, they can enter difficult terrain or something like that as long as they can fit. So they're they're very, very specific about what it's doing with interacting with terrain. And I think that's that's clear picture mm. too. So nice. I think good call I, out, Mitch. Yeah, that is a good call. So I think I hear what you guys are saying. So I literally had this scenario happen to me just a couple weeks ago. A Mumak was charging my battle line and there was a three or maybe four inch tree, single tree, that I hid my warriors behind and the Mumak couldn't trample me because he, I, I basically lined my guys single file up and the, and the Mumak had to, you know, pivot and then move past this tree in order to, and I kept just running around the tree and it, it seemed so dirty because it was a single tree that was three inches tall and the Mumak can't just run through it. I, I think that's the letter of the law right there. Uh, that is rough. Yeah. It, it makes sense based on what you guys just read, but. That seems that seems dirty. Only if it doesn't w- rule in your favor. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so the last question I have, and I don't I don't know if I missed a question. If you guys wrote down a different one, but this one is going to be, uh, I think, challenging to describe over audio. So I'll do my best, but uh, you guys clarify or jump in if I screw this up. And Matt, this is actually piggybacking off what you were talking about with the whole idea of does a base equal one inch control zone? The, the I think the question it was sparked from this conversation. So here's the, here's the situation. You have a, a very classic battle line. So let's say I have my two warriors, a sword and then a spear support, 
and then Mitchell, you have your two warriors, a sword and a spear support, and then plus maybe one other random warrior. And we're fighting up against a like a house or something. So there's there's really uh, no way to go around. I'm I'm fighting in a a wedge, right? Yeah. And let's say this wedge again. I'm I'm trying to articulate yeah. this. It's yeah. three inches wide. So definitely more than just one model, or actually three models could go through this. But my battle line, I set up. I'm right in the middle. So I have exactly one inch on my right, exactly one inch on my left. And this is the question. I'm trying to get a guy past my battle line because I want to tag an objective or something in the back. And this actually happened to me in a game recently. So here's here's what happened. My sword, my spear are, are lined up in the gap. Mitchell, you engaged my front guy. So my control zone's now gone, right? Mm-hmm. And you want to get, there's an objective right behind me and you're trying to get to the objective and you want to charge past the question is, what do you? How do you factor in or think about the control zone from the spearman? So, if you imagine this battle line, you charge the front guy. There's no control zone, so now you're trying to run past to get to that objective. But my spear, my spearman sitting back there, and I know a lot of times we either ignore or forget about the control zone of the spearman. But in this okay. specific case, it actually was like critical. There was several victory points on the line yeah. and we, we played it that I, I just didn't do it. I just charged both guys into the front guy. Cause we didn't want to deal with the, the conversation of, uh, I don't know where this falls, but I wanted to talk about this. So hopefully I describe that you guys understand what I'm trying to get at. Um, let me pause there. I think you guys played it right. You can, where this gets bad is when you're saying you can't charge a model because of another control zone that you would enter. So I think you can always charge a model if it makes sense to do so. I don't think you can ignore a control zone to be able to move and get around it. So in that case, you couldn't move around the wedge without entering an enemy model's control zone. Therefore, you had to charge somebody when you entered it. So I agree with how you played it. Uh, This is going really into, like the spirit of the game. And I know there's all kinds of things. Never assume what the writers intended. Never, never all these like, no, no, don't do this. But at some point what's the, what's, what is it? The second rule or something like that? What makes logical sense? What makes sense? Like, and that goes back to what Matt says, like, yes, technically you're entering a control zone that you're not able to charge that particular control zone, but you are also trying to enter a control zone of someone who, even though it's a fraction of a difference you're trying to intend to charge the nearest person to you that you're able to get to right what makes logical sense this also this also goes into like what the to rules but hopefully he'll rule in favor of what makes logical sense and when i teach people how to play the idea i give of what the control zone is because to me this is what makes sense of why this control zone even exists is if you're standing in battle doing nothing are you going to let some guy run past you and go grab your prize? No, you're going to you're going to step in way of him. But if you're trying to, you know, support or if you're you have other friendly models in the way of you, like how are you going to step in front of them? So like it just to me it, it's the logical sense. I might be rambling, but that's to me is what the logical sense. No, I think it made sense because you could still charge somebody and the spear guy can't keep you from charging the guy in front. But the spear guy can keep you from running around to get to the objective because in the real world he'd be like, "Wait a minute, yeah, exactly. upon me, I exactly. slapped, I slapped thee." Yes. 
Okay, so in so in this case, we're all saying the control zone of the spearman exists. You can't run behind him, so you have to engage him. Okay, I, I, uh, I definitely agree, and I don't think there's any other use case where um, you would be trying to run behind or. And I said objective. I I was actually looking at my notes. The situation I ran into was there was a hero right behind the spearman who had called a heroic move, and I was trying to cancel the heroic the enemy heroic move because I won the roll off. Um, so it wasn't even objective. I was trying to get like a move advantage. Yeah. So we're saying in, in all use cases, treat the spear support of having his control zone if you're trying to get around him, but then play it more, play it more logically real world if you're just trying to engage somebody who the spear support is supporting. Yeah. I know Pat came up. He's the TO down in Portland. He actually wrote out several when all this started coming out about the one inch versus 25 millimeter bases you know that kind of thing he wrote out his own personal to rulings like just so you know this is how it's going to be ruled and he basically said the same thing what makes logical sense you can always charge someone if they're right in front of you essentially because they're right in front of you right so he's not going to deny someone being able to charge so which interestingly i don't think this ever got faq'd no they're no they're ignoring it for Yet Probably we'll, for controversy. I don't know. We'll give we'll give Floyd and Legolas's deadly shot two more FAQs, but this one—it's so probably because it's so doggone hard to write ver, uh, verbiage that represents this. It's probably yeah. also he just probably recreate what he said in the beginning, whereas do what makes sense, right? Exactly. That's why he <laughs> put that. In there. There's no way you can cover every sort of rule, so do what makes logical sense, right? I wonder so. if he's just kind of laughing at this anyways, because that's what oh, I would if I wrote it, I'd be kind of snickering. Yeah. 100% agree. But, and it's like two philosophies too, right? If you write a rule set or game set or even code a law, like take this into the real world, if you're trying to write a list of everything you cannot do, you will always spend your time trying to answer new weird use cases of what you cannot do. But if you create an overarching idea and then leave it to people to apply, it's amazing how much people will find alignment and come into agreement. And then you don't have to weird deal with these weird use cases. Good point. And I, I like making fun of the FAQs, but I'll just put my clip in there. I think it's a great rule set, Jay. You did a great <laughs> job. You're listening. I hope you are. <laughs> yeah, no, I love the FAQs. Um, Makes, yeah. I need more of them. <laughs> yeah. So, all right, that was all the questions I had. Do you guys, go ahead. Sorry, I interrupted both of you. Nope. I actually have I have two questions I was going to throw out there really quick, yeah. and yeah. I've done extensive research. Just so you know, this has to do with the con chariots, but I've seen them questioned a lot on Facebook, and after talking with a bunch of things, I've come to a ruling that are not in favor of the condis chariots. But I think it's it's deserving to call out if people who play the chariots ever want to do this. So the first thing um, is, uh, can you use the piercing strike, special strike, to increase your strength to help you with your monstrous charge? I think that's a big one because it's big controversy left and right. You hear it both ways. You don't know which way it goes. Uh, I talked with some people and looking into it, and there is an order of operations if you follow it. So by the letter of the law, monstrous charge says, if you have higher strength, than the opposing model, you knock them over and deal strikes. In the piercing strike, special strike, special rule, it says that when you make strikes, you get plus one strength. So mm -hmm. if you're following the order of that operation, technically you'd knock them over before you get your plus one strength. So therefore a piercing strike does not 
help with your monstrous charge on your chariots. Um, the that's just the way I you guys can agree or disagree, if, or do you guys agree? No, I agree. agree. Okay. Um, the second one, which is more of just me like trying to figure out if that makes sense. Um, the Iron Hills Chariot specifically states that a model cannot be hurled or hurled into kind of a thing. That's the big thing. The Condus Chariots don't say any such thing. So as of right now, rules is written, um, because it's a cavalry model and you have a higher strength, you could pick up the whole 60 model base. Um, so, and you hurl the 60 millimeter base, right? Um, subsequently, if you pick up a warrior model and you hurl it into the Condus Chariot, you just knock it right off. So um, one makes more sense to me than the other one. The, the big one for me is picking up the 60 millimeter base of a chariot and hurling the entire chariot down the line. But the rules as written, I think that's the way it's supposed to be played. So those are the only things I was going to throw out there. No, I agree so, with you on that. I agree with you on both of them. And yeah, hopefully there will be some sort of clarification because it seems it seems broken both ways, right? Broken in your favor, sometimes broken and horribly against you in other ways. Like the idea of throwing a 60 millimeter base down a line, that's that's just ridiculous. Yeah, if you get a Belrog, well, I guess that makes more sense because he's pretty strong. But if you get a cave troll, like, yeah. right, or, you know, something small, an well, ogre right, in, or a dweller. Think about we've talked about this, I think, in our very couple first couple episodes, but the base size of models is a huge advantage or disadvantage. Like think of the gun to bad troll. We talked about it just takes up too much space. Same, if you get a cave troll picks up a chariot and gets a horrible roll, you're still throwing it what difference in strength plus D three on a sixty millimeter base, which is what, three inches? I can't three, do the math. Three to six inches, yeah. So you're getting plus three inches on top of your difference in strength, on top of your D three. Like it's it's yeah. That's a little OP yeah. in my mind. I'm bringing ogres against Mitchell next time I play. <laughs> uh -huh. A little five inch or five, inch five ogre. We'll do the Ogre's. impact hit uh, uh, championship or whatever. We can do more impact hits. So. Oh, All I right, guess no. that, that, the only thing that does uh, impact hits stumpy. on me is that it's that, yeah, the stumpy. Yep. And it's only one strength 10, so it's not as good. Oh, okay. I was thinking of the ogres, but you're right. The ogres are just like dwellers. That's right. Yeah, the ogres are just little monsters. So that's rules. I really, I really enjoy that. Uh, so if if you're listening, you have other ideas that you're thinking about, please send them in. We love to talk about it. We do not guarantee that we will ever get them right. We do not guarantee that we will be sound, intelligent when we talk about them. But it is super fun to to try. So which is why all three of us, I think, make a very strong point whenever we argue in the favor of rules, whether we list page numbers. I can't emphasize that enough. I can't I can't tell you how many times on Facebook I've given up trying to correct people on rules on Facebook because as soon as you cite a page number, everybody else cites against you or something and they don't list any rules citation or anything. They just say, Nope, that's not right. And I'm like, well okay. I know that explicitly says you're correct, but we don't look at the rules like it just doesn't seem right. This is the way we play. This is our house rule. So funny. <laughs> but no, okay. So the the next thing I wanted to try with you guys about. So there was a, somebody sent me a blog post, and a, the blog. We let's make sure we give them a shout out. This is, was pretty sweet. But basically, the 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 thought of the blog was some cool situations or scenarios on how to conserve might or how not to waste might. And I was reading through. It was super fascinating. Whoever put it together, I, I'm pulling up the name right now but um he put a ton of time into this 
some really detailed uh, math on why he thought the way he thought. And I don't want to get that detailed. I want to do a little bit higher level because I think some of the ideas I fundamentally disagreed with. So I wanted to to bring it, bring it to you guys, see what you thought, and we can talk about it a little bit. But uh, let me do this. So the name of the blog was Tell Me a Tale, Great or Small. And the title of this specific blog post was Top Five Ways to Waste My Points, One Gamer's Opinion. And again, like super fascinated read, loved it. It's really long uh, in depth. Uh, I ate it up. But here's, I think here's his thesis. I'll try to do him justice. But he basically said he thinks they're the, the, the top five ways of wasting might points in any game are as follows. Uh, boosting to hit rolls when you're shooting. That's number five, he said, is the top, number five way, number the top five ways to waste might. Uh, number four, he said, uh, don't call heroic accuracies ever. Hmm. Number three, he said, don't channel spells that boost a bonus or a reduction uh, by D3. And number two, he said, don't, oops, went too far. He said, don't counter call heroic strikes when starting fight values are nearly equal. That's number two. And then number one, he said, don't counter call heroic moves. So really fascinating headlines and there's nuances in every situation, but I wanted to talk at face value on all of these subjects to see what you guys thought. And why don't I start with what I quickly agree and disagree with at a high level before we get too far into it. So the, the first one he said, don't boost uh, to hit rolls when shooting completely agree. I don't think I've actually really ever seen this happen. Uh, there's, there's not a lot of people that have um, might and shoot. And most of the time, if they do, you probably want to use it for something else. So I, I agree. It's a horrible investment because we've all been that person where we, we try to get the hit and then your next roll is a one to wound. Um, and I think his argument was, it's just too much of a risk because you still have to roll to wound. So mm -hmm. now I, I think like everything in here, it's situational, but mm -hmm. if you are playing domination against an unbroken goblin town and they have one goblin at defense three, sitting on an objective and your elves. So it's a 50, 50 shot to make a wound. Then you're going to do it. But I mean, you yeah. can play devil's advocate that's... on all of these, but just so we don't get that hate mail, I think that's worth saying. Yeah, if it's, if it's a 50, 50 roll for a wound afterwards and it's worth a game point, then yeah, yeah. you're going to. Yeah. If the game's Anything... on the line and yeah. yeah, if the game's on the line and this is coming down to the wire and this is your only play. Yeah. By all do it. If it's a banner, you're trying to snipe for victory points in the last turn. Absolutely. There's always going to be a fringe use case where you're going to try it, but I, maybe I should have phrased this as I, I totally agree with him in situations where the game flow is normal and the game is not riding on the specific play. Yeah, I think, I think, uh, yeah, early game, almost never, right? Uh, late game, there's, there's some opportunities maybe. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. yeah. It, it, what does it need? What needs to happen? Yeah. Late game, all bets are off. I like the way you said that. Yeah. Um... All right, so that was easy. Number four was don't. If call it's early game, though, then never call a heroic move on the first turn. That should. Be <laughs> that's what the about top contest of champions? Yeah, contest of champions. That's true. You see, there's never an absolute. Yep. <laughs> oh, yes, are not allowed in Middle Earth SPG. That's fair. That's fair. Um, okay, so number four. This one, I 
I had a knee-jerk reaction and then had to walk myself back and say I agreed with them. Um, so it was don't call heroic accuracies parentheses like ever. And at first I was like, what do you mean? Like heroic accuracy is going to be so powerful. And I'm thinking, man, when I run my Urukai gun line with Brasku and I have 16, you know, crossbow shots and I call a heroic accuracy and I shoot through your rank and dehorse your hero, kill your banner and steal your women all in the same turn. Like, oh, that's amazing. And then I kind of thought about what I just said and I was like okay well number one I hate shooting and I never take shooting so already we're talking about an extreme use case a extreme fringe case and the only other scenario where I would like agree with that is like an elf army where you have a halder with a whole bunch of Lothlorien elf shooting or Legolas and Rivendell or whatever the combination of elves are so really I think there's only one or two times where I would ever do it myself. So I think by definition, I agree with them. Don't call heroic accuracies. Yeah. I completely disagree with that. I, I, I'll hear Matt's first, but I also have my own little issues. Go ahead. Well, it, it, you have to flex to your army build. And when we're talking about this, it just depends on what kind of an army you've got. Uh, if you have Gullivar sitting with three lines of orcs and you've got 14 crossbows, being able to re-roll each in the way, getting to Gullivar with a crossbow is absolutely worth a point of might. I happened to play a game against the Witch King with Iron Hills crossbows where the Witch King was sitting on a piece of terrain with an in the way, but he was up six inches sitting on a fell beast. And I called a heroic accuracy with six crossbow shots, killed the fell beast because of the heroic accuracy, and the Witch King took falling damage all the way off the tower. Absolutely worth it. So... I think there's many scenarios. I remember the scaredest I've ever been running Azog was at Nova playing against a really neat guy, but he was playing Rangers of Athelion. And he had, I think it was 37 bows. And so I was like, no big deal. I'll put uh, all my Gundabads in front of Azog in the first turn of shooting. He called a heroic accuracy and had 37 shots at Azog. It was absolutely worth it. Yeah. Now, didn't kill Azog because of blind luck, which is the only reason I won that game. So maybe that supports the guy's notion. But, I mean, stuff like that, you're going to do it to get yeah. more odds of getting eye on target. I mean, I would pay five might in that scenario to be able to say I'd get 37 shots at Azog and roll the dice. Let, let me qualify my stance maybe a little bit before we get too far into the weeds here. So, Matt, I think what we're saying is almost the same thing don't call heroic accuracy unless your win condition relies on shooting. So you've built your 37 Rangers of Athelion archer list, or you have a gun line of crossbows. So this isn't like a dwarf ranger and his five ranger buddies who are going to call a heroic accuracy. So you've got, you've had to have made an investment in your shooting ability and you have to have quality shots before you're ever thinking about using heroic accuracy. I still yeah. don't think we're agreeing, though, because in my Iron Hills army, six crossbows isn't a win condition, but the Witch King is sitting up top with a huge yeah. fall. Oh, you did but, it with six okay. crossbows. I did it with six crossbows, and I killed the wow. fall beast. So uh, okay. before we go okay. any further, before we get people messaging and yelling at us, I think they FAQ'd you can't do a heroic accuracy to intentionally hit the mount, just so you know. No, no, I didn't I didn't do that. I was well, just okay. going for the Witch King. 
Okay, but you're I trying to damage game. I wanted to end the ways because he was up on a piece of terrain that had, I'm not sure what they're called, but where the little things stick up that the archers shoot through. Oh, okay. They were really tall, so there was an in the way to just get to the fell beast or the okay. witch king. Okay, yeah. so you're still trying to hit the... Okay, I see what you're saying. Um, I think you're spot on to Matt. I think I agree with both of you. I think it's it's it's... Yeah, it's very situational, super situational. Like if you have Rangers of Athelion or even uh, Dunedain Rangers, when you have 15 Dunedain Rangers and you have 15 points of might just between those Dunedain Rangers and all they can do really is call heroic accuracy, yeah, maybe one of them will call heroic accuracy. Like it's where you build your armies. Um, but also like what is it? what's your risk versus reward? It's all math to you, right? So I kind of agree with both of you. I think in that case, we'll reference this guy for his article, because he wrote a good article, and then we'll also reference our friends at Drawn Combat. I would take five minutes, and I would look at my odds in their little, <laughs> in their little table, and I would make a decision. There you go. Yeah, that's that's a good call. Um, and I will say, there was like a funny uh, caveat he put, and when you read through the article, you'll see, but he's like... At the very end, or the very, I can't remember where he put it, but he's like, BTW, this does, this goes out the window completely if you have Aragorn who has might for days and doesn't care what he spends it on. So, <laughs> that's true. <laughs> Aragorn can call whatever he wants. So, all right. So, number three, uh, don't channel spells that boost a bonus or reduction by D3. And so, a couple examples here. So, if you think uh, Sap will is if you cast it, you get a D3 sap will, and if you channel it, it becomes D6. Or drain courage, if you're casting a drain courage on somebody, you reduce the model's courage by one, but if you channel it, it goes to D3. I or black dart. Right? Black dart and banishment, those are a single wound, uh, or wound attempt or strike, whatever you want to call them. They're, they're, they're different, but... Uh, I think black dart's the riskiest one because you have to roll to wound and then right. you have to roll to see how many wounds you get. So I, we're, I think, yeah, I think we're going to get into definitely again, situational and, and more risk versus more reward for all of these, but maybe just for simple simplicity, banishment is easy because that's an auto wound. You don't have mm -hmm. to consider the, the odds of getting the, the wound roll. So banishment is uh, one wound. Normally if you channel it D three wounds, mm. I agree with this uh, just because I've never, ever done it. So that must mean I agree with it. And plus, you still have the fate to get through for those things. So you uh, could lose it. I disagree. I, this is where it comes into situations. But if you have Gandalf the White or Gladrill Lady of Light and you're staring at a shade across the way. Yes. Yeah. That's exactly what it, I was You are absolutely going to channel that because you're either going to A – get through it and possibly one punch it yeah you might not but you're going to be for sure make them burn a lot of will to try to resist that because they don't want to be one punched either yes. so if you channel something automatically your opponent's going oh my gosh <laughs> like it's a psychological game like i gotta resist this i gotta do whatever it takes to resist this and they might blow through all their will you know just yeah 100 possibility. or or when you call the channel they just move back yes yeah, okay. Maybe we should clarify the fact that make sure you have your ducks in a row and you don't call this spell and then everybody like takes two steps back and now you're out of range. <laughs> That's why it becomes so hard is you have to call, call the channel before the moves are made. So, mm -hmm. you know, you call the channel, someone can just, I mean. Yeah. You, you basically got to make sure you're on a fell beast or you're on like Gandalf with 12 inches of movement. You got to make sure you can get to what you're trying to do. Um, 
Yeah, but Matt, that is actually good. So like Lady of Light, she's stuck on foot. And if you're a shade and you hear that channeling, maybe for one turn you sacrifice your shade's ability and you just move backwards. So you can't get hit. You can't yeah. get targeted. Unless Lady of Light moves first, then you'd have to burn a point of might to call her moves. Now you're uh, both we're getting, canceling we're each other's moves. So now you're <laughs> burn a point of might with the moon and Virgo. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I think this is more just academic. There's so much, yes. again, so much nuance to all of these. But I, I think it's so hard to say you can never do this. There's a reason for everything, right? So I think that's just my general approach to this article. Yeah, and the, it's, it's good clickbait, right? That's how you get people to read it because you're an absolute. Well, then they got I, me. I'm completely suckered in this one with the fringe thing that if it's if the game's on the line, maybe. But I've never spent might to channel a D3 type. So this could this could be my take, and it's totally wrong, but this is just what I've been playing with. I've been playing with a lot of Angmar lately and a lot of Gandalf the White. And so I've had the chance to mess around with these. And I think my philosophy has changed so rich. Like, beginning, I used to think magic sucked, and I would avoid magic, like, at all costs. I thought it was a total waste of points, too unreliable, blah, blah, blah. Well, then I experienced how powerful and potent magic could be, so then I thought, oh, magic's the best thing ever. Um, I'm always going to take magic. And then you find out, okay, magic has its limits. And then I got into this weird zone where somebody challenged me. Just they're like, hey, just just try it to see what happens. And um, again, I think there's risk reward, but the the reward and and the amount of strategies that open up to you if you're willing to go down these paths is incredible. And I'll use something simple here: the drain courage. If you have a terror-based army, so you're an evil army that's doing the harbinger of evil, and you start a strategy early on of draining courage on a enemy leader, and you get to late game, and you, with either one or two casts, maybe one channel on here, you've reduced that enemy's hero to courage one or two, and they run away. Uh, it is unreal. Like Aragorn at courage two. Can you imagine? Like it just... It's yeah. weird. And you yeah. can't, in real games, you can't invest enough turns to just reduce. If you have like an elf hero who's Courage 7, you don't have enough turns to sit there and try to cast a one a minus one Courage every time because there's just not enough turns in the game and you need to utilize your spells for more impacting or more impactful strategies. But if you just dabble with one Mitchell, you called it out earlier. The fear factor, because your opponent is now overthinking, what are they going to do? What could they do? Maybe they burn all their fate, or may not fate. Maybe they burn all their will to try and resist this one weird spell. And now for the rest of the game, you can, you know, Pen puppet puppet yeah. master with other things. So it there's, I, I've had one against me, one where I was the magic caster, where the D3 option on sapping will, on courage, um, played out and it was amazing. They tried to block on the courage one. They tried to block the courage drain. They missed it. They lost all their will. So they were a weak, couraged hero with no will. I was able to transfix them for the rest of the game easily. And they ran away as soon as the army broke. Hmm. So it was incredible. So maybe my thought here is similar to the guy that challenged me. Just try it to see what new types of strategies open up to you. I think, I think I think for me, it's the way you're playing it. To me, when you do a channel, to I don't know, maybe it, you're not. I'm not always relying on it to go off. I'm relying on it to force my opponent 
to do everything he can to resist it. He might burn all three will and maybe a point of might. He might burn two will and then realize, oh, I should have burned that third will and burned two might, you know, something like that. Uh, it's it's a psychological factor. Yeah, it can pay off great, but it also it can fail. But I don't know. It's to me when you call a heroic channeling, and you successfully cast a chill soul or you know whatever the one cause or a black dart, and now you stare at your opponent who has Aragorn, and he's saying, oh, I, I probably could resist it with two will and save a will for late game. But if he gets it off, man, this is bad. This is my leader. This is VPs. This is everything. So I, I don't know. It's kind of a psychological thing. Yeah. This is the case for why you bring a base generic ring wraith. Mm. It's just to do that little drain courage type thing every once in a while. Without buffing anything. They just sit in the back line, have <laughs> Harbinger of Evil, and pester people. Yeah. yeah, which we've matriculated a long ways from the top five ways to waste might, but I like this. <laughs> All right, quickly, uh, number two and number one. So number two, don't call heroic strikes when starting fight values are nearly equal. So already he is, he's really making this a, uh, a very specific scenario, but fundamentally I disagree with this. And when I had to think about why I disagree with this, I, this is what I came up with. If you're in a, even in a friendly game, but more so if you're in a competitive game, there is never a scenario where you have heroes who have striking ability who are charging each other when victory points are not on the line. And so I think the, the main argument that he's trying to make is most of your heroes are big enough where they're not going to get one punched in a single turn. So you can save a point of might Knowing that you'll likely tank whatever comes at you, and then you'll have more resources at the start of the next turn to do what you want to do. But I'm saying, my experience playing competitive games, if you ever find yourself toe-to-toe -to -toe with somebody who's striking to try and kill you, it's because they do have the resources to one-punch. They do have the resources to wound you, and victory points are on the line. So I would always be calling a counter-strike in this situation. I would be doing something to react for sure, either a strike or defense. Yeah, strike, strike or defense. Yeah, one-on-one, -on -one, yeah, I'm striking back with you because, yeah, I could roll a one, but so could he. I mean, he's yep. taking the same risks. Uh, if you don't call something, you're basically giving him a guaranteed higher fight, yep. right? Whereas if you call something to counter, you're at least challenging it, but yeah. I actually agree with him here. Hmm. Interesting. But the only reason I do is because I play with Azog, Balg, and Gothmog, and I have Master of Battle, so I'll wait for them to call it, and then I'll copy it. <laughs> I was literally about to tear, and you'd be like, so walk me through scenarios. And All of us would be called. Nope, the only reason I agree with him is because I will do it for free. <laughs> well, I'm not wasting my uh oh uh good situation um durin like it, it it all depends on um the killing power so thror or durin when you're d9 and you have either the the arkenstone or you know the crown of durin where you have a good possibility of tanking maybe but if he, i've been one punched by a witch king with durin so yeah there's yeah. there's almost no way you're gonna take that risk right Especially if you call the heroic strike against Durin. No, you're not wasting that. Have have fun, Greena. But yeah. that's yeah. a big difference between Yeah. 
And I think that goes back to the, the qualification of in, in actuality, you never have somebody charging Duran who's striking that isn't fairly confident that they will do damage. Whatever their tool is, there's a bunch of them. Whatever their, their strategy is, there's a reason they are charging you and striking you in a competitive game. Yeah, I would agree. So. I mean, how can you not? Let's let's say you've got Shagrat on the charge. How can you not strike to counter that? Even if you're even if you're higher fight, even if you're fight seven, how can you not strike on a Shagrat at fight five? Oh, this this is a great Sha- Shagrat's dangerous because he's he is a freaking meat cannon. Like he, I have been on the other end of his his destruction. Strength five, three attacks is crazy. But and he knocks I- you down. And he knocks you down for double strikes. But so what the use cases where I was thinking to try and disprove my theory is okay. You have Gilgalad. Not yeah, Gilgalad. That's that's bring no. Gilgalad. You have um, you have like Glorifless. You have Elrond. You have Elrond who's fight six going up against a uh, orc. Uh, one of the named orc captains. Sam. There's a bunch of them who have strike. So you're you're dealing with somebody who is strength four. You're D seven, and they have two attacks. So you're basically saying, okay, I'm not. I'm risking the fact that you have two attacks and you need sixes, and you might have to uh, spend more resources to burn might. In that case, I would say you maybe you tank it. But again, going back to reality, nobody is going to do that unless you have spear supports plus traps plus a lo- bunch of other stuff. So where it's not going to be just that two attack captain going up against Elrond. It's going to be the two-attack captain with all of his buddies, plus bonuses, plus now all of a sudden he puts five wounds on you and Elrond dies, even yeah. with the ring. Which I, I've it's never just going to be the solo model. Yeah. yeah. I, I thought of a situation, Marcus. This would be fun to run you through this because you play this model. Let's say you have Gilglad on foot and you have a charging Shagrat that charged into Gilglad uh, and he strikes. Now, obviously, Shagrat's the strength five, three attacks, knocks you down. Six attacks coming at you, possibly. Hey, Mitchell, but... just for a fake scenario, replace Shagrat with Shut Dwalin. Up. Replace Shut Shagrat up. with Dwalin and let Marcus answer this. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Inter- interchangeable. Would you call a strike to counter it, knowing that you're a guaranteed fight 10? <laughs> so I, I actually think my answer would be slightly different, but they're going to be very similar. So, Mitchell, your example of Shagrat is my opinion on that is because of what happened with Dwalin. So let me talk about that first. Gilgalad fought Dwalin toe-to-toe, Matt called strike, and I said, ha, let's see if you get up to 10. I'll worry about it then, uh, but I also have an elven spear, so, you know, let's have fun. Matt rolled a uh, fight 10, so it's Gilgalad was down on the 10, and he rolled, he won the fight, so Gilgalad's, okay, whatever, he's D8, Dwalin's, what, strength 5, whatever, burly, and Matt put three wounds he had four attacks, put three wounds on Gilglad, and I rolled a one on my fate, and Gilglad died in one turn. And because of that, and seeing that happen in game, I will never put myself in that situation again. Because you're tempting, you're unnecessarily tempting fate with that tank coming at you. You could die in one turn. It's happened to me with Gilglad. And then you have your epic elf lord and the rock bed of your army list gone i think that was like the first or second turn of combat hmm. like it was funny i was crying but as a result <laughs> so it was really ne- funny <laughs> i will yeah i will never do it again like it's just if it goes against yeah you might win three out of four times but the one time you lose it you're gonna lose the game for sure it's an auto loss mm-hmm. so um 
because of that, now going to your example with Shagrat, my answer would even more so be absolutely I'm calling the strike. I know there's a chance that Shagrat doesn't roll a five to go from fight five to fight 10, but Shagrat's got the knockover ability. So he would even be rolling more dice than Dwalin did, and Dwalin one-punched me. So, yes, I'm calling strike. Uh, and Gilgalad's bad, too, because I get blood and glory. So it's almost free, because if I can kill Shagrat, then I get my might back. But the, I think the concept stays. I, do, I am never going to tempt fate when there is a chance I could get one-punched. I agree. And I would say that doesn't go back, that uh, doesn't contradict me because both Dwalin and Shagrat have the actual ability to go toe-to-toe and one-punch the hero. Generic orc captains or named orc captains with two attacks don't. Strength yeah. five, burly two-handed, or knocked to the ground is insane. Yes. So. I agree. Um, all right, and the last one, uh, don't, don't counter-call heroic moves. Ugh. So this is, I think this is a, a really well thought out idea. And I love what, I think the the idea that he was trying to convey here is too often do people have it in their mind that they're just going to automatically call a heroic move and they're going to be, they're going to be spending might, which is the most precious resource in the game. I think we all share that idea. Uh, they're going to be spending might without clearly understanding why now he put some exceptions here again aragorn's exception to everything because he's got unlimited might uh rohan's an exception or all mounted uh armies or if you're trying to keep a, a unit of cavalry alive like there's a lot of situations where everybody would agree to call might but his general consensus was i'm not going to call a heroic move a counter heroic move unless i have one of those weird exceptions and while I so, like the idea where he's he's asking people to stop and think before they call the heroic move, I fundamentally disagree with him because I think moving is probably one of the biggest advantages in the entire game. To move first, I think, is critical in almost every situation. And so I am always, and in competitive play, you're always in very tight situations where moving first has such an incredible advantage. Just making an observation with those exceptions that he put in there. So that basically throws out everything except infantry versus infantry, right? Because if you're infantry versus cavalry, you're going to want to call if you're cavalry. And if you're the infantry side, you're going to want to call it to cancel the cavalry, right? Mm -hmm. So those exceptions basically just say, if you're infantry versus infantry, don't call the heroic move, which Again, with Marcus saying, that still is very, very key for positioning, for traps, for spells, for pinning a hero, for getting to a hero, to if he's going to protect something or if you want to protect something. Like, there's so many advantages to moving first. So. Two things that I did think about, and Matt, I, I want to hear your thoughts on this too, but two things that I did think about while reading this is, number one, his challenge of make sure you actually have a strategy for what you're going to do with your move. I think that's an excellent call out. As you're positioning in regular move phase and as you're lining up your strategies, your plays, your win conditions, whatever it is, make sure you're you're playing towards your, your objective. Play towards what you are trying to accomplish. Don't just exist through every turn. Don't just rush forward to fight for the sake of fighting. So... Yeah, be critical of yourself when you're calling that move. What is your tactic? What are you trying to accomplish? 
besides just moving first. So I think that's a great call out. The second one, because um, I think he actually called this out in the article, would you uh, would you ever call two heroic moves? So if you get into a situation where um, you win priority, your enemy, your opponent calls a heroic move, you counter call a heroic move, then your opponent counter counter calls with a second hero, where do you draw the line? And I think I personally fall on the side where I I'm, it's going to be a very, very, very weird use case where I'll ever call more than one heroic move hmm. um, in a counter just because it's so easy in, in the games I've played. It's so easy for one person to tie up both heroes. So if you lose the roll off, both heroes get tagged and then you don't get the benefit of any of your moves. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think what this, I normally see this as if you're spread out along a battle line. So let's say there's a piece of train in the middle and you have two fronts, you're fighting on one side of the train and on the other side of the train, this side calls a heroic move. He counters with a heroic move over there. You call a heroic move on your other side, and he counters on that side as well, right? Are we uh, talking about that kind of situation? Where uh, no, two different in, fronts? No, in my mind, I was thinking one battle line. So if you're if, okay. you, if you have two different fights, then yes, you would never be at risk of losing both. Right. Um, but there still is a strategy and a thought process to go into that. So let's let's say that your opponent calls it first because you have initiative. Your opponent calls it first on this front, so you counter in front of him, and then he calls another one over on this other front on the other side of the Mitchell, GG. I must interrupt you. Uh -oh. We are not playing 40K. We are playing Middle Earth Strategy Battle Game. There, thank you. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> I've contributed so anyway. this episode. <laughs> I've just been slapped. Okay, anyways. So he calls his second heroic move over on this other side of the board. Uh, with his other battle line, do you burn your second point of might to counter that? Because essentially what's happened is he's committed two resources. And so far you've committed one. You could risk it all and win, and he could lose out on one side, the one that you countered with, and thus he essentially lost a point of might, whereas you didn't lose anything. You gained everything. Or could you uh, call the second heroic move to counter his second heroic move and automatically lose one of your points of might? You're thus saying, yes, I'm automatically losing one point of might, but you're automatically losing one point of might, and I'm guaranteeing one of my fronts is going to move first. There is uh, analysis, I think, that needs to be debated in your head before you automatically just call that second heroic move. Do I want to risk it all? Or do I want to offer up the 50-50 split and sacrifice a resource? Yeah, I, I definitely see what you're saying there. And and maybe something to even add to the argument, because I think it supports your thought process, is how important positioning is at every facet of the game. So I, I can't remember where we were talking about it, but we were talking about um, what's the giant tournament in, in the UK the world tournament. Oh, Articon. Articon, yes. I'm totally blanking. Um, there were some high-profile games there where all might was spent on the board within the first few turns because people were spamming moves and uh, marches uh, to get positioning. And I think, I think the one game we were talking about specifically, by turn two, somebody had spent all of their might hmm. on movement-based... Sounds like heroics, me. and uh, they ended up winning the game handily. So it's just I, there's a lot, there's so much advantage from moving. So in your situation, Mitch, when you're trying to do the math in your head, like is it worth it? Um, the first thing that came to my mind is okay, well, 
am I Matt and do I build 15 might into every list that I play? So might's not really that scarce of a resource. Yeah, absolutely. I'm calling it, but maybe I'm trying a weird idea where I'm taking Angmar and I only have three or four might to begin with. Then all of a sudden that is a very different question, but supporting your idea, I wouldn't be in that position because that's not my win condition. If I'm playing that army properly, I shouldn't be in a case where I'm fighting on two fronts and need to move first. I should I should have already been playing my army in such a way where I would be out of that or, of, or not even in that scenario. Hmm. I think it goes for me. I, I obviously this is just goes with whatever you're playing first or playing at the time. When I'm as dwarves, yeah, move initiative is great, but there's only so much movement you can do to take advantage of it. Yeah, it's great to have it, but I don't know, you can also tank a lot of things. So maybe you're more likely to call heroic combats than you are heroic moves. I don't know, that's just an idea that was coming to my head. Not always the case. I agree that moving is so huge in the game. But if the fighting on two fronts thing, I find that I've never had a game where I'm fighting on one front with my chariots. It's always going to be two fronts. And so uh, for but to call a heroic move with, on both fronts is automatic for me because the chariots need to charge. It has to charge. They have to do something. So even though I'm going to lose two points of might and one of them's going to be a lost forever and one, but it's at least one of them's a guaranteed to go first. That's the thought process that I'm talking about. That's going through my yeah. head. Yeah. If I'm dwarves, I probably won't call a second heroic move. Right. You know, I, I'll, I'll call it on my main front. Yeah. Cause that's the one I really want to do something. But on the second one, Nah, they're fine. They're D7, D8. They can they can tank it. I think you guys have pretty much called it out. This is this is why I build armies the way I do. And you know, I love Corsairs. Everybody knows I'm playing Corsairs right now. They're low on might, so it messes with my usual strategy. And Mitchell took advantage of that last time we played because he could outmove me. Um, I purposely call a lot of moves in my typical build to drain people of their might. And if they choose to conserve their might, then I always have the advantage. I think movement is critical. I think you can say so many things. You could say cavalry. You could say spell casting. You could say gap filling. You could say battle line formation. I don't believe this belongs on the list because it is situational to the extreme. It matters what army makeup you've got. It matters what turn sequence you're in. It matters what scenario you're playing. Uh, I spend the vast majority of my might on heroic moves. Yeah, and we're we're also uh, I do as well. I spend most of my might as heroic moves or combats, right? Those are the those are the big ones. But uh, we're also kind of getting into this double heroic move thing. But I think based on the paragraph he's talking about just even one heroic move is called he's countering correct well and, you... and i don't want to speak for the dude because obviously okay. i'm just reading i'm just reading the paragraph but i th i think yeah to a certain extent it's clickbait but i think fundamentally he just came, he came up with a really interesting way to put math around the idea of challenging norms and making people think like i again i i I, I read this article and I was like, well, I don't agree with anything. And then I went and thought about it and you start putting pen to paper, so to speak, on why you're doing the things you're doing. And you kind of like, oh, actually, you know, yeah, I do get kind of lazy with my my positioning. I do get kind of lazy with, you know, what army am I building and am I dwarves? So I don't really need to be moving or I'm not really worried about traps. So why am I not taking a better why am I not taking better advantage of the fact that I don't really care as much? So I, I think fundamentally, 
my my take was he's challenging the norms and forcing you to really think. And by doing so, he's fleshing out the fact that everything is so nuanced. Every game is different. There is no absolutes um, in this case because you're going to find an example to do every single thing he's saying not to do. Good point. I also think, yeah, that's that's a great call out too because I'm thinking about like situational cases like some armies are built to counter move like that's all it is like the ones i'm thinking of are hobbits and corsairs like hobbits there's they don't have the movement to engage you and to wrap around but they do have the movement if you charge them to wrap around you right so mm -hmm. they're they're definitely a counter move army so i probably wouldn't call heroic moves with hobbits you know unless it absolutely forced me to but i would think corsairs are built the same way right matt you you want them to charge you and then you wrap around and you do what you want to do right Unless you're playing lawnmowers. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, okay. I broke up. <laughs> super fascinating discussion. Like, and, and I loved reading it. It was super, super great. So, and one last time, the, the blog is Tell Me a Tale, Great or Small, uh, Top 5 Ways to Waste Might in Middle-Earth SVG. Uh, super, super fascinating read. He must have spent a ridiculous amount of time putting the tables together when he was coming up with his math of why he thinks some things are better to do versus others. And yeah, it was super fascinating. I love that. Yeah, so, well-written article. Mm. Yeah, it, um, got me, it got me in. It hooked, hooked line and sinker. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that was fun, guys. That was uh, a lot to unpack. I hope... I mean, I hope we did everybody justice, the the blog and, and the questions. Uh, again, love hearing the, the ideas that are coming in. If you have questions, hit any of us up. Um, we don't really have a medium to collect these things yet. We should probably think about that at some point. Um, well, I mean, I'll just plug the Instagram account right now, the underscore Durin show. Uh, yeah, shoot us messages on that. Get, get in touch with us if you want. Yep. Instagram. And I, th I think... Oh, I was going to say, I think we also love like weird use cases. So why they might not be practical, like the Sharku thing. Tell us what you're running into, because it's it's really fun to think about um, and talk about. Hmm. Absolutely. I, like so, I think a lot of people see us interacting on Facebook, too. So most people get in touch, too. So. Well, excellent. Thanks, guys. Thanks, everybody. See you later. Later.